Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Anat Alone Beck, Assistant Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. We will discuss her article, Unicorn Stock Options, Golden Goose or Trojan Horse, which was published in the Columbia Business Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Anat. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. This is a really cool and sort of timely paper. And I understand that it's been getting a lot of attention as well. So yeah, it's really an honor. Um, I was, I'm a little bit of a geek and I follow Matt Levine. And I started getting interested in unicorns because of him. He had, um, you know, one of his uh, newsletters said people are worried about unicorns. And that's how I really started getting interested in this. And then a day after uh, the paper was featured at the Harvard Corporate Governance uh, blog, he posted it on his newsletter. And I was so honored and excited. So um, it's really an honor. So your, your paper is really timely because it's addressing sort of circumstances in the current sort of market for tech companies and tech company employees today, really. But but for listeners who aren't may not be that familiar with how tech companies are structured and how they're they're financed, I, I wonder if you could start by talking about some of the terms that are important for understanding or identifying what you're discussing in the article. So for example, what exactly is a, a unicorn company? Sure. So um, you know, about nine years ago, if you thought about a company that's venture capital backed and it's a startup that it would reach an aggressive valuation of over $1 billion without going public, so it's a private company, you would think that you're somebody's crazy for even bringing up the idea because usually startups are very poor, they don't have any money, and their dream is to go public and be able to raise large amounts of money. So a unicorn is really a private company that's VC-backed, that's worth over $1 billion. Uh, and what they're doing is they're staying private longer. Mm-hmm. So we've got companies that are not offering stock to the public, but have a large amount of cash associated with them. Am, am I understanding that right? Correct. Okay. Okay. So in in your paper, you talk about how those companies historically have offered their employees compensation, at least in part in the form of, of stock options. So can you talk a little bit about what that means, sort of what kind of compensation are they actually offering their employees and, and why are they doing it? Why did that form of compensation become such, such the norm? Sure. So startups are associated with the new economy. And in, new, in the new economy, uh, the employees are the ones who are contributing to the firm's assets. The assets are intangible, and they really rely on employees to create value. Without the employees, you're not going to have tech company. Um, as, in a, as I said, usually uh, tech companies, at least in the beginning, are very cash poor. So you have to attract very talented people to come work for you. You don't have any money to offer them. So what you do, you used to do, is offer them equity or even more a promise of equity, which is options, right? So an option is a contract between um, an employee and the company that says, if the company, you have an option of exercising 
Um, and if the company is worth something one day, then you're going to exercise your option and then you're going to become a shareholder and you will actually own equity in the company. And you'll be worth a lot of money when there will be a liquidity event like an IPO. Okay, So that's why the dream was always an IPO. Okay, so so how does that work? Like maybe you could kind of walk us through the steps from the perspective of an an employee in sort of a quote unquote traditional, as it were, unicorn or just tech company type situation where they might be offered stock options as part of a compensation package. What would that look like from the employee's perspective? What would their experience of that be? With a unicorn or not a unicorn or both? Well, I, maybe both, because it seems like the shift to a unicorn really kind of changes things in some ways. Right. So think about this. Uh, according to some empirical data by Jay Ritter, about um, until, like I said, until nine years ago, until we started seeing these unicorns. So a tech company that would be successful, after about four years, they would do an IPO. So after four years... Um, the employee, after they, let's say they got options and they started working for the company, there's an option pool that's usually 20%. So uh, you're an engineer, you start working for a nut tech company. And then the company's doing really well. The, the It was worth, you know, very little when you started. Now you have a higher uh, value, higher valuation of the company. And then you're doing an IPO wow, what's happening at the IPO? Before the IPO, you usually exercise your options. So now you actually own shares in the company. And after the IPO, you can sell them to the public. So you can liquidate your investment in the company. Without an IPO, it's very hard to liquidate. Now we have secondary markets today. But because securities laws, most companies, most tech companies would not let their employees just uh, simply trade their options uh, or if they exercise um, their uh, stock on secondary markets. And we can go over that too. What, what's so problematic with using secondary markets? So a secondary markets is another development as a result of these companies. Mm-hmm. So, so as I understand it then, kind of historically what would happen then would be the company would not have very much cash prior to the IPO. So they would compensate the employees with a salary, but part of the compensation would be these options, which were like the promise of a big jackpot if the company happened to become really valuable. And then the company would do the IPO in order to get money. And so doing the IPO would mean this big kind of flood of investment money coming in. And all of a sudden the company's worth a lot more money and then the options are valuable and then the employee gets their jackpot. How does a unicorn change that or the shift to kind of unicorn companies make that story no longer describe what's taking place? So this, what's happening today is these companies are staying private longer than 11 years. So as I told you before, they would go and they would do an IPO after four years. Now they're staying private longer than 11 years. And there's three things that we need to take into account. You want to attract employees to come work for you. You want to engage them. You want to give them incentives to continue being productive while they're working for you. And you also want to retain your talent. You want to make sure these are very competitive markets, that they don't compete um, and either start their own businesses or move to your competitor, right? So 
uh, options have been very valuable. And that is, you know, if an employee wanted to leave, you would offer them more equity and promise of equity in the company. And it would be very hard for them to leave because they would be leaving a lot of money on the table if the company is successful, right? If the valuation is going up. Um, and they would also feel that they're owners in the company, right? The more they do, the more they work, they are able to uh, drive the valuation up of the company. It's up to them. As I said, these are companies with intangible assets. Really, the employees are the ones who are driving the growth in the company. Uh, what's happening today is that it's really a pervasive situation because of two things. We have tax laws and securities laws. Let's just take into example the tax laws. So traditionally, and, and there was, by the way, a reform recently, which we can go over as well. Um, after 10 years, options expire. So as I told you, these companies are staying private longer than 11 years. So what happens when you come to 10 years, right? You have to decide, are you going to exercise the options or if you want to leave, Right. So one situation is if you're continuing to stay with the company and you've been there for over 10 years, now your options are expiring. And the other one, if you want to leave, you usually have 90 days. It's called golden handcuffs. Um, you have 90 days to decide uh, if to exercise or not your options. Now, what happens is according to tax laws, when you exercise, now, remember, unicorns are worth over a billion dollars. When you started, they probably weren't worth much. So we're talking about very high valuations. Um, you have to pay taxes on profits that have not materialized yet. Why? The company's still private. You can't just sell the stock in the company. You have no platform to sell it on. Like when an IPO, um, the company's trading on an exchange and you can sell. Here, it's private. So, you know, if you exercise, you have to pay a lot of money on taxes on a profit that might never materialize. What if the company, what if the valuation is aggressive and, you know, tomorrow the company's valuation goes down? You just lost all this money you already paid in taxes. Right. So, I mean, it seems like the, part of the problem here is that the compensation structure was designed with the expectation that cash for the company would come through an IPO. And in a weird way, it's like other forms of funding have created a kind of almost like pre-IPO massive cash event such that the IPO is of kind of relatively less significance as an investment event for the company than, than it used to be instead of changing the way that the options create incentives for employees. Is, is that right? Well, What's happening is that there's multiple factors that cause these companies to want to stay private longer, right? Uh, when you stay private longer, one, um, you don't have to report on your uh, competitive information. You don't have to share that with the public. Two, you don't have to be subject to the oversight of the market. And, you, and then your valuation can remain aggressive, right? The more investors you have coming in, investing your company and pumping up the value, the value can, con can continue going up and some investors prefer that. Third, the securities laws uh, with all the different reforms starting with the job, Jobs Act and onward have enabled companies to maintain um, 
you know, offering securities to investors and staying private longer and also uh, offering um, options to their employees. The problem is the employees are not no longer biting into these companies, right? Um, so what's happening is this. You have the old employees who are stuck in the company and you have the new talent that figure out, wait a minute, I don't know if this company is going to do an IPO or not. So uh, sometimes even within less than a year, they jump to the next adventure and they leave the company. And as I said, uh, part of the allure of the using options was you're able to engage, attract, and retain your employees. So you can't retain your talent anymore. They figure this out. The new talent that you would want to train and have them stay. Think about how many resources you're spending in training employees and then they're leaving you, right? That's a huge strain on the company. Mm, mm, mm. So the options are no longer having the incentive effects for new hires Correct. that they were created in order to sort of encourage. And then they're sort of putting f former or older employees or pr prior employees sort of in a situation where they're not getting what they they expected when they signed on. Correct. Because what's happening with the older employees is that, as I, again, as I told you, because of the tax laws, they have to decide if they leave, they're leaving the options on the table. Because if they exercise, they have to have a lot of money to be able to pay for the taxes afterwards. So it's not just to pay for the exercise, but it's to pay really for the tax event after you exercise. So maybe you could talk about kind of employees in both circumstances and in a little more detail, sort of how that's affecting them. Because, you know, the story you tell in the paper about sort of how this is affecting the decision making of kind of newer employees for companies is is really interesting because it seems like the numbers about like retention and whatnot really speak volumes about the extent to which options are no longer accomplishing what what they were designed to do but but in addition for older employees it seems like they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place in a way yes and what's happening is a result we have uh, labor contract renegotiations right so um, the company has to renegotiate um, these agreements with the employees. One, because the options maybe have expired. Now, there was a recent reform um, that would allow, it's called the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that is a response to this. So the National Venture Capital Association, is very, as well as a few lobbying groups, um, they were financed by these unicorn firms that decided to lobby Congress and, you know, let's try to do something about this. Um, give us some solutions, give us some tax reliefs. And um, there was a reform, but unfortunately, um, the end result is not that successful either. Um, and the reform is basically meant to uh, allow um, these employees to defer some of their taxes. It's a new reform. So, I mean, how well has that worked in terms of solving the problem? And is it doing anything for newer employees as well? In other words, you know, it sounds like some of the reforms were directed at employees who've been at companies for a long time and who are kind of facing a unattractive tax situation where they're sort of not able to exercise options that they expected to be able to exercise. Are the changes making any incentive 
differences for newer employees at all? No, because the issue is really a liquidity opportunity, right? That's why you have these direct listings. You have companies who are now, they're not doing an IPO to raise money. They don't need to raise money. There's so much money coming in uh, through late stage private placements that they don't need uh, public exchanges in order to raise money. What they need is liquidity opportunities. That's why you have this phenomenon of um, direct listings. Right, right. So how were these changes intended to help employees and why haven't they worked? They haven't worked for multiple reasons. Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, um, what legislator intends to and the end result is <laughs> that you get after a bill is passed is very different, right? Um, you have to offer broad-based compensation to employees in order to have some of that legislation in place. And so companies will have to offer it to all their employees when they're coming in. There's different restrictions in the legislation that makes it so that uh, many unicorns are not it's not worth it for them to do that because then they have to take into account securities laws. So um, under the new jobs act, right, they extended the amount of employees that you can offer um, equity to. So in the past, um, those reforms came after Facebook, right? So why did Facebook do an IPO? Facebook did an IPO because they crossed a certain number of threshold of employees where they had to file what we call a registration statement. Once you file a registration statement, you have to disclose material information about your company. So uh, thanks to the Jobs Act, uh, the threshold that triggered registration with the SEC has changed. So um, employees that are receiving equity grants no longer count as investors. And um, the number of accredited investors you know, changed from 500 to 2000. Um, and at least 500 of these shareholders must be accredited investors. So that's helped to some degree, but it sounds like it hasn't really resolved some of the fundamental problems because the companies still don't have the same incentive to do the IPO. And maybe there are reasons why it's difficult or problematic for employees to sort of monetize, as it were, their stock options without an IPO? Correct. What's happening is, thanks to the reforms in the securities laws in the past few years, is we're actually giving incentives to uh, founders of these startup firms to stay private longer. So on the one hand, you have the SEC, you know, including uh, the SEC chairman, Jake Clayton, saying that they're worried about the fact that we're seeing less IPOs and they're working on ways to um, you know, give incentives to companies to continue to do IPOs because we want robust uh, public markets. But on the other hand, they're also helping these unicorns come up with ways to compensate their workers and allowing them to give them stocks in the companies. So I think they really need to decide on their agenda right? Do you want to encourage them to go public or do you want to enable them to stay private? So um, as I said, many times they mean well, but the end result is opposite to what they intended. So have 
other people proposed potential fixes to this problem or ways of addressing this problem? Unfortunately not. And the other thing is that, as I, you know, from the example of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, we really have to take, we have to look at it from a systems thinking perspective, right? Uh, you have to look at both the tax laws, securities laws. How is this the entire ecosystem being affected by these changes? Not just look at how can we fix the tax laws without taking into account securities laws. And that's really the problem is that we really have to, from a policy perspective, look at both to decide how we're tackling this issue. Mm. So is is part of the problem that we've got these, uh, you know, like, an increasing number and increasing sizes of these unicorn companies, but we also have more traditional tech startups that are still cash poor, but we're trying to deal with them in the same way. And they are kind of different problems requiring different solutions. Well, I think there's several problems. One, in terms of legislation, a lot of the legislation is intended for the cash poor startups, but the ones who actually end up using all the safe harbors are the very wealthy unicorns. So that's one. Um, two is uh, with regards to unicorns, the things that people are concerned about are one, aggressive valuations, right? We're seeing them, not that many, by the way, 2019, 2020, we're going to see more unicorns doing an IPO, but we're not going to see all unicorns doing an IPO. Maybe 20% are going to do an IPO. 80% are still not going to because of the aggressive valuations. Once they do an IPO, they're subject to the market determining their valuation, right? So as long as they're private, they can continue to control the valuation of the company. So uh, the concern is really the aggressive valuation of these companies. Um, And they're not being audited, right? um, The second concern is, um, and that's something that I'm, um, you know, also working on in my next paper, how are these different investors? As I told you, a lot of this money is coming from overseas. We have a lot of investments in, um, you know, private placements, late stage private placements, right? How is that affecting the U.S. market? Um, what you're going to find is that a lot of VCs are trying to compete with the uh, different international actors. And as a result, it's really changing the VC market as well. So from an employee perspective, you know, how do you think that we can go about restructuring some of these um, compensation incentive sort of structures to make it more attractive to employees given the realities of the unicorn company ecosystem? I mean, you propose some kind of changes and fixes and ways of thinking about the problem that might kind of help resolve some of these tensions from an employee perspective. What do you think we should do and why? That's a great question. I honestly think, so in my paper, I'm offering several possible solutions, but I'm also criticizing them and I'll tell you why. So first, um, and by the way, a lot of lawyers are making a lot of money (laughs) advising these companies on what they should be doing there, but they're coming up with, you know, what what I call our short-term fixes, right? Because it's really a long-term structural problem that these companies are dealing with. Uh, To me, let's start with what I think the solution should be, and then I can go over some of the other um, possible solutions and what are their downfalls. I really think that 
we need to encourage companies to do an IPO and go public uh, for several reasons. I think we need robust public markets. And then I think um, the market can tell us what the valuation of these firms. And if we're looking at employees, they can A, get liquidity, to get information. So a lot of the criticism that I hear sometimes are like, not these are people who work for these companies. Don't you think they have information on what's going on? They say, no, they don't have information on what's going on. Hmm. It's one thing when you work for a startup and you're a team of one, two, three, maybe five employees, but these are like companies that have over 10,000 employees. I don't really think that the employees know what's happening in these companies. And we've even had some litigation recently that showed that uh, employees had no idea um, that a company was going to go bankrupt and be sold to another company where they got nothing. So when you get when the company sells, the employees usually get nothing for their options, right? Um, and so they put all this their you know sweat equity into the company, and if the company gets bought out, the employees don't get anything if there's a trade sale. So that's the other thing we need to think think about is that uh, these employees work for the companies. They don't even know how much their options are really worth. They don't know about sometimes about the different rounds of uh, financing that the company's getting, who are the investors, how much are they investing. Uh, so there's a lot that needs to, to happen here. There's a lot of improvement. So, uh, so there's a few solutions. One, there's new equity-based compensation contracts for different types of employees, depending on when they joined the company. But I criticize them as well because um, there's different uh, golden handcuffs of what happens if you want to leave the company. Uh, when can you exercise? And sometimes some of the solutions that people came up with are pervasive where people who are currently working for these companies will have to support people that left. That doesn't make any sense. Why would I work for a company? As I said, as an employee, I'm driving the value of the company, right? I'm the, I'm the asset of the company. The employees are the assets. Why would I work for somebody that one of my colleagues goes, diversifies their investment, moves to a competitor, and, I, and still is able to hold their options in the company? That doesn't give me incentives to work so, so that somebody else can continue to benefit, right? That's one. Second... There are alternatives to traditional liquidity mechanisms, right? For example, some companies, Uber, before they did an IPO, you know, let SoftBank um, buy some um, equity. Different, uh, some of it was through um, through employees' equity, but I'm sure it wasn't all employees. They were very restrictive. They probably offered only certain equity of employees who were very valuable, right? Very senior. Not all employees got to to um, to enjoy that. And the other thing is, can you really let employees trade on secondary markets? I wouldn't think so because securities laws, you have to disclose material information about uh, the security that you're selling. So do we want employees disclosing certain information on the company? I don't think so, right? Mm-hmm. So then... Maybe we have to improve our secondary markets and allow the employees to trade on them somehow, but the company would have to facilitate the secondary offering and the company would have to provide the information. Otherwise, not only the employee can get sued for uh, material misstatements, but also the company can get sued. 
So it's very complicated. Um, so I honestly think there's two things. One, we need to have a comprehensive reform to our current uh, regulatory and legislative models. And I'm talking about both uh, securities laws and tax laws. And we have to take both into account where we're you know, suggesting any kind of solutions. I mean, I mean, it, it seems like part of the problem you're you're identifying here is that the solutions that sort of are being proposed or being pursued in other circumstances are like kind of like kludges or fixes to the fact that a lot of these unicorn companies are choosing not to do IPOs and go public. And in a sense, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that what we should be doing is thinking about how to sort of encourage them to do an IPO and go public at a sort of predicted and expected time, both because that's good for the bigger market, but also because it's good for employees and the way they expect to be compensated. Correct. And the other thing is, if we look at it traditionally, the employee equity contracts, they were not designed um, for the company to remain private for so long, right? So that's why, you know, even if we look at incomplete contracting theory, um, then there's now new market conditions that, you know, uh, force the companies to renegotiate the contracts, and none of the new solutions are efficient. So they renegotiate, renegotiate. The employees are unhappy because they have a conflict of expectations. They expect it to join a startup and have this dream of, you know, striking gold and becoming very rich one day. But now they're stuck in these companies. They don't know if they're going to have any liquidity event or not. They have tax concerns. So um, these the employees feel like they're locked in. Uh Whereas the companies are more concerned, for example, about investors. So the investors are the ones who are able to maybe liquidate on secondary markets. Okay. But the employees, the ones who are actually contributing to the growth, they're locked in to these companies. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's bad for the employees in the sense that they don't get what they're expecting, but it sounds like it can also be bad for the companies, which might have conflicting incentives between sort of getting money from outside like VC type investors and other kinds of investors who are looking for private placements, but also wanting to retain these intangible employee assets that are so important to their business. Oh, the shift in the unicorn employees expectation, very bad for the company because employees are now publicly bad-mouthing their employers, right? We have online uh, websites like Glassdoors, Paysay, where employees of unicorn firms, you know, publicly are complaining. That's why other employees, that, you know, the younger talent doesn't sometimes want to go to these companies, or even if they do, then they leave, you know, before a year because, um, you know, it also makes it very expensive for the companies to monitor the labor force, so it's very bad for the company because um, you, they don't want the bad publicity, and it's very hard to uh, you know control the incentives of the employees. Yeah. So in this paper, you sort of take an employee perspective at the unicorn problem, as it were. I understand in your in your follow up work, you're looking at at investors. So maybe in closing, you could talk a little bit about where you're going next with this project. 
So um, thank you. That, that's, that's really interesting. I, I feel like I'm becoming the unicorn lady. <laughs> so the reason I actually started taking a lot of interest in this is because I was curious about the different players who are now involved in the market. Let me give you some, you know, a little taste of who they are. For example, if you've heard about SoftBank, right? So we have SoftBank, we have uh, mutual funds who are now investing in these companies. We have so many investors who are considered, you know, non-traditional investors. So the traditional investors in startup firms are VCs, right? We have venture capital firms. But the new investors are um, sovereign wealth funds, uh, corporate venture capitalists, mutual funds, hedge funds. Who's doing the monitoring? Um, we're seeing a rise in mega deals. These are deals of over $100 million. Uh, these are the late stage private placements that I've uh, mentioned. What happens in those deals, right? Are, are the contractual provisions different than what we would expect with traditional VC contracting? Um, you know, managers always have greed, right? Are they able, who's monitoring the board of directors of these companies? Uh, there's a lot of asymmetric information between the investors and the entrepreneurs. Are the new investors able to mitigate some of that uh, symmetric information? Um, so there's, it brings up a lot of very um, interesting questions about these companies. Mm-hmm. Well, Anat, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's a really fascinating paper, and you know, you've I think you've pointed to some some problems that we really need to be thinking about and thinking about how to mitigate or solve them. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's really an honor and uh, hopefully we can do this again with the next one. (laughs) (laughs) You, You bet. You're always welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Point and click, you may.
And it's called